So starting off with the basic terminology that you should know, um, matter is anything that takes up space and has mass. An element is a pure substance that has specific physical and chemical properties and cannot be broken into a simpler substance. An atom is the smallest unit of matter that still retains the chemical properties of the element. A molecule is two or more atoms joined together and then you have to know the two types of forces which are intramolecular and intermolecular. So intramolecular with an A are attractive forces that hold atoms within a molecule while intermolecular forces with an E are forces that exist between molecules and affect physical properties of the substance. Make sure you know that that's going to be important for the DAT for sure. And then monomers are single molecules that can potentially polymerize, and polymers are substances made up of many monomers joined together. Okay, so now we're going to jump into carbohydrates. Um, so carbohydrates contain carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen atoms. They can come in the form of monosaccharides, disaccharides, and polysaccharides. So monosaccharides are carbohydrate monomers with the empirical formula of CH2O, um, and imagine that in parentheses with a N subscript, which represents the number of carbons. And then there's a few things that you need to memorize. So you have to know that ribose is a 5-carbon monosaccharide, that fructose is a 6-carbon monosaccharide, and that glucose is a 6-carbon monosaccharide. Glucose and fructose are isomers of each other, so that means that they have the same chemical formula but a different arrangement of atoms. Disaccharides contain two monosaccharides joined together by a glycosidic bond. It is the result of a dehydration, aka condensation reaction, where a water molecule leaves and a covalent bond forms. Also remember, covalent bonds are the strongest ones that there are. Um, a hydrolysis reaction is the opposite through which the covalent bond is broken by the addition of water. So make sure you know that difference between dehydration and hydrolysis reactions. Um, you also have to memorize that sucrose is glucose plus fructose, lactose is galactose plus glucose, and maltose is glucose plus glucose. So all of them have glucose, it's just a matter of the other sugar being different. Um, so polysaccharides contain many monosaccharides connected by glycosidic bonds into a long polymer. You also should memorize that starch is energy storage for plants and is an alpha-bonded polysaccharide. And also know that linear starch is called amylose, while the branched form is amylopectin. Glycogen is energy storage for humans and is an alpha-bonded polysaccharide. And it has much more branding, branching sorry, than starch, so it's going to be able to release that energy a lot faster. So that's that. And then cellulose is a structural component in plant cell walls and it is a beta bonded polysaccharide and it's linear strands packed rigidly in parallel. Chitin is a structural component in the cell walls of fungi and insect exoskeletons. It is a beta bonded polysaccharide with nitrogen added to the monomer. Okay, on to proteins. So proteins contain carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen atoms. 
these atoms combine to form amino acids, which link together to build polypeptides or proteins. Amino acids are the monomers of proteins within the amino acid structure. So remember an amino acid is made up of an amino group, which is an N with three H's on it, and then there's a hydrogen, there's an R group, and there's a carboxyl group. So the R group is a thing that varies among the different um, amino acids. There are 20 different kinds of amino acids, each with a different R group. Um, I'd recommend memorizing which ones are aromatic, because um, that might show up. And also, of course, know the essential amino acids. So, okay, so polypeptides are polymers of amino acids and are joined by peptide bonds through dehydration, aka condensation reactions. And again, hydrolysis reactions break these bonds. The N-terminus aka amino terminus of a polypeptide is the side that ends with the last amino acid's amino group. The C terminus, also called the carboxyl terminus of a polypeptide, is the side that ends with the last amino acid's carboxyl group. So next, let's see, we'll go over protein structure. This is a very important topic to know for sure. Definitely saw questions on my um, DAT exam on this topic. So, okay, so the primary structure is the amino acid sequence. And the secondary structure is intermolecular forces between the polypeptide backbone. So not the R groups, but it's the um, inter intermolecular forces between the polypeptide due to hydrogen bonding. Um, it forms alpha helices or beta pleated, beta pleated sheets. So you're going to see both alpha helices and beta pleated sheets in secondary structure. The tertiary structure is the 3D structure, and this is when the protein becomes active um, due to interactions between R groups. So the tertiary structure can create hydrophobic or hydrophilic spaces between the R groups. Um, disulfide bonds may also be created by the covalent bonding. Um, in the quaternary, qu quaternary structure, sorry if I'm butchering that uh, pronunciation, but the uh, quaternary structure is multiple polypeptide chains coming together to form one protein. Alright, and proteins can also be classified based on structure as fibrous, globular, or intermediate. When looking at protein composition, they can be simple, meaning amino acids only, or conjugated, meaning amino acids plus other components. Um, protein denaturation describes the loss of protein function and higher order structures. Only the primary structure is unaffected. Some reasons a protein will denature is the result of high or low temperatures, pH changes, and salt concentrations. As an example, cooking an egg in high heat will disrupt the intermolecular forces in the egg's proteins, causing it to coagulate. Alright, and then catalysts increase reaction rates by lowering the activation energy of a reaction. The transition state is an unstable intermediate between the reactants and the products. Catalysts reduce the energy of the transition state. However, catalysts do not shift a chemical reaction and they do not affect spontane spontane spontaneity. Sorry, basically they don't affect delta G. Um, so they just increase the reaction rate but they don't affect how spontaneous it is, how spontaneous the reaction is. Um, enzymes act as biological catalysts by binding to substrates, aka reactants, and converting them into products. Enzymes bind to substrates at an active site, which is specific for the substrate that it acts upon. 
Most enzymes are proteins. The specificity concept, uh, sorry, specificity constant measures how efficient an enzyme is at binding to the substrate and converting it to a product. The induced fit theory describes how the active site molds itself and changes shape to fit the substrate when it binds. The outdated theory was the lock and key model. A ribozyme is an RNA molecule that can act as an enzyme. A cofactor is a non-protein molecule that helps enzymes perform reactions. A coenzyme is an organic cofactor such as vitamins. Inorganic cofactors are usually metal ions. Holoenzymes are enzymes that are bound to their cofactors, while apoenzymes are enzymes that are not bound to their cofactors. Prosthetic groups are cofactors that are tightly or covalently bound to their enzymes. Protein enzymes are susceptible to denaturation. They require optimal, optimal temperatures and pH for function. So they're really picky. It needs to be the right temperature and the right pH for them to function. Now we're going to talk about the different kinds of inhibition. This is, again is a, a topic I would highlight. Um, so competitive inhibition, and I also encourage you to see the graph for this. Definitely know what the graph looks like for all these different kinds of inhibitions. So competitive inhibition occurs when a competitive inhibitor competes directly with the substrate for active site binding. The rate of enzyme action can be increased by adding more substrate. Non-competitive inhibition occurs when the non-competitive inhibitor binds to an allosteric site, modifying the active site. In non-competitive inhibition, the rate of enzyme action cannot be increased by adding more substrate. An enzyme kinetics plot, which again I encourage you to take a look at, um, can be used to visualize how inhibitors affect enzymes below, okay, yada yada, so there's a graph here that I'm looking at, but of course you don't have that in front of you probably, so I'd encourage you to look it up and just see what the different um, graphs look like for a normal enzyme, for a competitive and non-competitive inhibitors, and no Vmax, know what Vmax means. Um, look up the line weaver burke plot at your leisure. All right. So and also know that with competitive inhibition, that's where the Km increases while the Vmax stays the same. And in non-competitive inhibition, that's when the Km stays the same while Vmax decreases. And again, um, so the Km is the short for the Michaelis constant, Michaelis constant, which is the substrate concentration at which the velocity is 50% of the maximum reaction velocity. And... Um, yeah, so Vmax is the 50% of the maximum reaction velocity, and you definitely have to see the graph for this one. It's a bit hard to explain without seeing the visual. Okay, so what's next here? So our next topic is lipids. And then we have nucleic acids, fundamentals of biology, and then that will wrap up chapter 2. Okay, so... Lipids contain carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. Like carbohydrates, however, they have long hydrocarbon tails, making them very hydrophobic. Triacylglycerol, aka triglyceride, is a lipid molecule with a glycerol backbone and three fatty acids. Glycerol and the three fatty acids are connected by ester linkages. Saturated fatty acids have no double bonds and as a result pack tightly, so they're solid at room temperature. And the way that I remember this is by imagining that they're saturated with hydrogen, so there's no double bonds. Unsaturated fatty acids have double bonds. 
they can be divided into monounsaturated fatty acids, which is one double band, one double bond, sorry, and then polyunsaturated fatty acids, which is two or more double bonds. Cis-unsaturated fatty acids have kinks that cause the hydrocarbon tails to bend, and as a result, they do not pack tightly, while trans-unsaturated fatty acids have straighter hydrocarbon tails, so they do pack tightly. Phospholipids are lipid molecules that have a gl glycerol backbone, one, phos one phosphate group, and two fatty acids. The phosphate group is polar, while the fatty acids are nonpolar. As a result, they are amphipathic, sorry, meaning they're both hydrophobic and hydrophilic. So the word is amphipathic, both hydrophobic and hydrophilic. Furthermore, they spontaneously assemble into a lipid bilayer. So, yep, we know that phospholipids are an important part of the membrane. Alright, so cholesterol is also a lipid molecule that is a component of the cell membrane and is also amphipathic. It is the most common precursor to steroid hormones. Cholesterol is also the starting material for vitamin D and bile acids. Okay, so next we're going to talk about factors that influence membrane fluidity. So, temperature is one of them. So, okay, so the three of them are temperature, cholesterol, and degrees of unsaturation. So these are all things that will influence membrane fluidity. So beginning with temperature, an increase in temperature um, increases fluidity while decrease in temperature decreases fluidity. Cholesterol, it holds the membrane together at high temperatures and keeps the membrane fluid at low temperatures. When it comes to degrees of unsaturation, saturated fatty acids pack more tightly than unsaturated fatty acids acids which have double bonds that may introduce kinks. Uh, lipoproteins allow the transport of lipid molecules in the bloodstream due to an outer coat of phospholipids, cholesterol, and proteins. Low-density lipoproteins, LDLs, are low protein density and deliver cholesterol to peripheral tissues. It's also the bad cholesterol, so the way I remember is remember, keep LDL low because it's a bad one. You don't want to have a lot of um, LDL. Bad cholesterol and vessel blockage can occur, aka heart disease. Okay, so high-density lipoproteins, aka the good ones, the HDLs, um, take cholesterol away from peripheral tissues because they deliver uh, cholesterol to the liver to make bile. So it reduces blood lipid levels. Waxes are simple lipids that have a long fatty acid that have long fatty acids connected to monohydroxy alcohols. That just means that they contain a single hydroxyl group through ester linkages. So waxes are uh, hydrophobic and um, used often as mainly as hydrophobic protective coatings. Um, Next, we have carotenoids, which are lipid deriv derivatives um, containing long carbon chains with conjugated double bonds and six-membered rings at each end. They function mainly as pigments. So you'd see carotenoids like in carrots and stuff like that and leaves in the fall. That orange-slash-reddish pigment is due to carotenoids and things like xanthophyll. Okay, next there's nucleic acids. So let's talk a little bit about nucleic acids. Um, they contain carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, and phosphorus atoms. They contain nucleotide monomers that build into DNA and RNA. Um, now nucleosides, with an S, contain a 5-carbon sugar and a nitrogenous base, while nucleotides also contain a phosphate group. So the difference is in the phosphate group. Um, one has them, one doesn't. So the nucleosides do not have the phosphate group. 
Um, deoxyribose sugars, like DNA, contain hydrogen at the second carbon, while ribose 5-carbon sugars, in, like in RNA, contain a hydroxyl group at the 2-carbon. So, and then also know adenine, adenine is A, thymine, T, cytosine, C, and guanine, G are the nucleotides in DNA, and that uracil uh, replaces the T, the, the thymine in RNA. Um, a and G are purines, two rings, while C, U, and T are pyrimidines. And the way I remember that is by the uh, acronym CUT THE PIE. So you cut the pie with C-U-T, and that's what <coughs> the pyrimidines are. So the pyrimidines have one ring. Um, and then uh, phosphodiester bonds connect the phosphate group of one nucleotide at the 5-carbon to the hydroxyl group of another nucleotide at the 3-carbon. A series of phosphodiester um, bonds create the sugar phosphate backbone with a 5-end and 3-end. So at the 5-end, there's a free phosphate, and at the 3-end, there's a free hydroxyl. Um, nucleic acid polymerization proceeds as nucleoside triphosphates are added to the 3-end of the sugar phosphate backbone. DNA is an anti-parallel double helix in which two complementary strands with opposite directionalities twist around each other. Furthermore, A can only H-bond to T with two hydrogen bonds, and G can only H-bond to C, which is three hydrogen bonds. So remember that A, so adenine and thymine are connected by two hydrogen bonds, whereas guanine and a cytosine are connected by three hydrogen bonds. RNA is single-stranded after being copied from DNA during transcription. In RNA, U binds to A, replacing T. Okay, so next we're going to talk a little bit about some fundamentals of biology. So let's go over modern cell theory. And there are seven components to this. So number one is that all life forms have one or more cells. Two is the cell is the basic structural, functional, and organizational unit of life. Three is all cells come from other cells. Four is genetic information is stored and passed down through DNA. Five is an organism's activity is dependent on the total activity of its independent cells. Six is metabolism and biochemistry occurs within cells. And seven is all cells have the same chemical composition within organisms of similar species. The central dogma of genetics states that information is passed from DNA to RNA to protein. There are a few exceptions, um, but like reverse transcriptase and prions, but we're not really going to cover that now. Um, and then the RNA world hypothesis is important to know as well, and the RNA world hypothesis states that RNA dominated Earth's primordial soup before there was life. RNA developed self-replicating mechanisms and later could catalyze reactions such as protein synthesis to make more complex macromolecules. Since RNA is reactive and unstable, DNA later became a better way of reliably storing genetic information. Alright, and that wraps up chapter one. So today we covered some fundamentals of biology, modern cell theory, the central dogma of genetics, the RNA world hypothesis, we talked about nucleic acids, we talked about lipids, proteins, carbohydrates, so there's a lot of important basics covered today. Um, and yeah, um, in chapter two we'll be talking about cells and organelles, and I'll see you then. Thanks for checking in. Happy studying.